Well, friends, please stand for the reading of God's Word. We continue our series through the life and ministry of David. This Sunday, we have a very exciting um, chapter to look at, many things to glean and learn from. 1 Samuel chapter 23, verses 1 through 14. Beloved, remember, remember, these are the very written words of God. Now they told David, Behold, the Philistines are fighting against Keliah and are robbing their threshing floors. Therefore David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go and attack these Philistines? And the Lord said to David, Go and attack the Philistines and save Keliah. But David's men said to him, Behold, we are afraid here in Judah... How much more then if we go to Keliah against the armies of the Philistines? Then David inquired of the Lord again. And the Lord answered him, Arise, go down to Keliah, for I will give the Philistines into your hand. And David and his men went to Keliah and fought with the Philistines and brought away their livestock and struck them with a great blow. So David saved the inhabitants of Keliah. When Abiathar, the son of Ahimelech, had fled to David to Keliah, he had come down with an ephod in his hand. Now it was told Saul that David had come to Keliah. And Saul said, God has given him into my hand, for he has shut himself in by entering a town that has gates and bars. And Saul summoned all the people to war to go down to Keliah to besiege David and his men. David knew that Saul was plotting harm against him. And he said to Abiathar the priest, Bring the ephod here. Then David said, O Lord, the God of Israel, your servant has surely heard that Saul seeks to come to Keliah to destroy the city on my account. Will the men of Keliah surrender me into his hand? Will Saul come down as your servant has heard? O Lord, the God of Israel, please tell your servant. And the Lord said, He will come down. Then David said, will the men of Keliah surrender me and my men into the hand of Saul? And the Lord said, they will surrender you. Then David and his men, who were about 600, arose and departed from Keliah. And they went wherever they could go. When Saul was told that David had escaped from Keliah, he gave up the expedition. And David remained in the strongholds in the wilderness, in the hill country of the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul sought him every day. But God did not give him into his hands. Indeed, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. And may he add his blessing to it. You may be seated. So on our trip to the beach, Stephanie shared with me one of her favorite new podcasts that I highly recommend called I Spy. I don't know if you've heard of that one before. Each episode features a real-life former spy who has quite a story to tell. Graham Pachta, coincidentally, has shared with me some of these spy stories before, and I found a great one that I was going to share with you this morning until Nate used it in his illustration last week, and so I had to find a different one. I hope that went well, Nate. <laughs> well, the iSpy podcast that I really enjoyed recently is called The Master of Disguise, and it features former CIA agent Jonah Mendez and her mission to help acquire, that's a euphemism for steal, a top secret encryption machine from a Soviet 
embassy in Asia. This is real-life spy stuff. The machine, obviously, being an encryption machine, would help us read their mail, as it were, and understand exactly what they were doing, thinking, plotting, planning, etc. Mendez's job in this deal was she was the maker of the disguises. She was an expert, an absolute expert in the art of disguise. But good disguise was not going to be enough to get them to be able to acquire this machine. First, they had to get, our intelligence operatives, had to get everyone out of this Soviet embassy in Asia for us to be able to get in and do our work. Okay, how in the world were they going to be able to convince the Soviet intelligence officers to leave the building? Well, they thought of an ingenious plan. They organized a tiger hunt. And a tiger hunt was very popular in this part of Asia. And so they were going to organize a tiger hunt. And they sent invitations to everyone in the embassy. And everyone accepted. All of the Soviet officers went on the tiger hunt. Mendez put all the team in disguise. They go into the building. They get the encryption device. They come back home. A massive intelligence win. Until she gets back to Washington. And one of her senior officers asked her, tell me about your trip. He didn't have clearance. She wouldn't tell him. He got very annoyed. And so he says, I'll tell you about your trip. He said, you went on this covert mission and you did get this encryption device, but guess what? We didn't need it at all. We could already read their mail. We know everything that they're saying. We just want them to think that we don't know what they're saying. Do you get it? That's pretty ingenious, okay? That didn't go over very well, Stephanie. I think that's a very good story. Well, here's another one. Do you see, it was a ruse to convince the Soviets that we couldn't get their information when in fact we could. Okay, another episode. We'll try with this one. This one was very fascinating. <laughs> James Olson is a former CIA officer, and he actually teaches right now currently at Texas A&M in their, I guess, their intelligence program. Yeah, I heard some whoops over there. Um, so he's working in Vienna at this time. He's working in Vienna, and sometimes they would have walk-ins. And one day, someone walked into the U.S. diplomatic office in Vienna, and this person spoke Spanish, and Olson spoke English. They both spoke Russian together, but they couldn't really communicate until James Olson heard this man list out Cuban asset after Cuban asset after Cuban asset, like he recognized the names. In exchange for a new life in America, this man told Olson that every single spy we had in Cuba was controlled by the Cubans. Every spy we thought we had in country from 1961 to 1987 was actually a double agent working for the Cubans. The Cuban intelligence had completely owned our entire asset inventory of spies on the island. Now, that's a good story, right? That's pretty amazing. The spy game is fascinating. And what we'll find out in our text today is that the spy game has been around for a long, 
long, long time. In fact, underneath everything that's going on in our text today is a massive spy game. David has his operatives, Saul has his operatives, and everything's on the line as to who's going to get the best intelligence. Saul's trying to find David. David doesn't want to be found. David's spies are out trying to figure out what's going on. It is amazing stuff happening in our passage today. With that in mind, let's consider verses 1 through 5. 1 Samuel 23, verses 1 through 5, we'll be focusing on the character of the true king. And you will see quite a contrast between Saul, the king on the throne, and David, the true anointed God's Messiah. Verse 1, now they told David. Who is the they? The they is David's highly sophisticated intelligence network that's telling him exactly what's going on and what's happening where and what Saul's doing. Now they told David, Behold, the Philistines are fighting against Keliah and are robbing the threshing floors, which was a huge problem. Verse 2, Therefore David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go and attack these Philistines? And the Lord said to David, go and attack the Philistines and save Keliah. Now, a number of things to note here. The Philistines were attacking a border town, a border town between Philistia and Israel and way southern Israel, okay? Keliah is probably about 30 miles southwest of Jerusalem. And the Philistines are attacking it to do what? To rob the threshing floors. What did it mean that they were robbing the threshing floors? That means they were stealing the food sources of Keliah. The threshing floors, floors were located right outside the city. That's where you would process all the grain from harvest. If the Philistines were to get their hands on the threshing floor and all the grain, that would completely destroy the city of Keliah. So this is a major threat, a huge problem. I want you to notice who does not go. Who doesn't go? Isn't it ironic who does go? David is in hiding. He's very concerned about being identified by Saul. And yet Saul is the king on the throne. He's the one that should del del deliver Keliah, but he's totally preoccupied with destroying David. In many ways, Saul is like an antichrist figure in the book of Samuel. Number three, obedience to the Lord put David and his men at great risk. And David's men knew it. So David's intelligence network let him know what was going on. David inquired of the Lord. Lord, should we go? The Lord said, go. David shares this with his men and their concern. Look with me at verse 3. But David's men said to him, behold, we are afraid here in Judah. The Lord had called David and his men back to the promised land. And so they were hiding from Saul in Israel. And so that made David very vulnerable, okay? And now God is calling David and his men to do this very public act. I mean, it would be like, you know, putting out a banner saying, I'm here, come get me. Verse 3, but David's men said to him, behold, we are afraid here in Judah. You know, like we're hiding. It's not going well here in Judah. How much more then if we go to Keliah against the armies 
of the Philistines. And David said to himself, you know, you make a very good point. I'm going to go right back to the Lord and just make sure that this is what he wants us to do. Maybe there was some problem in transmission. Verse 4, then David inquired of the Lord again. And the Lord answered him, arise, go down to Keliah, for I will give the Philistines into your hand. And David and his men went to Keliah and fought with the Philistines and brought away their livestock and struck them with a great blow. So David saved the inhabitants of Keliah. Now, friends, this is the embodiment of godly kingship. Not what they see on the throne with Saul. This king is the very embodiment of what God's Messiah should do. This is the kind of king that the people needed. Think about it. In obedience to the Lord, in obedience to the Lord and at great risk to himself and his men, David attacked a superior foe and saved his people. This was the kind of king that put the interest of his people above his own. Does that sound familiar? This is the kind of king that put the interest of his people above his own. This is the kind of king that at great risk to himself, in obedience to the Lord, delivers his people. There is an amazing amount of foreshadowing in this text, almost point for point, in what happens to the life of David and what happens in the life of Jesus. And once you understand a Christocentric view of Scripture, you see these foreshadowings everywhere. It is truly remarkable. Not only did David save them from the hand of the Philistines, David left them in better shape than he found them. How is that implied by the text? How did David leave them in better shape than he found them? Let's look at verse 5 again. And David and his men went to Keliah and fought with the Philistines. Now notice this next remark. And brought away their livestock and struck them with a great blow. So David saved the inhabitants of Keliah. So he didn't just strike a great blow to the Philistines and defeat them. He took their livestock. What does that mean, he took the livestock of the Philistines? What would you imagine? What do you think? What does that refer to? Why did the Philistines have livestock? when they attacked Keliah. Their livestock was like their supply trucks, like their cargo trucks. How are they gonna get all of that grain from the flesh threshing floor from Keliah back to Philistia? It was with the livestock. So these were like cargo transports, okay, that would have been tremendously valuable. And so David destroys the Philistines, he takes their livestock, and it's implied in the text, he gives that to the city of Keliah. So they go from certain death and destruction to bounteous plenty. They had more than they needed. That's the kind of Messiah that had delivered them. So in summary, in just the first five verses, we see this Messiah. He's aware of his people's plight. He's concerned for their well-being. He's a man of prayer. And at great personal risk, he obeys God to deliver them. He is the ideal king. We'll see his character further expressed in verses 6 through 14. Verse 6, when Abiathar, the son of Ahimelech, had fled to David to Keliah, he had come down with an ephod in his hand. We'll talk about what that is in a minute. Now it was told to Saul 
that David had come to Keliah. Okay, Saul has his intelligence network everywhere. He is aware of David's movements. David has come out into the open. David is now engaging with Keliah. And Saul said, God has given him into my hand, for he has shut himself in by entering a town that has gates and bars. And so you should hear ominous music now. You know, Saul is like rubbing his hands together. He's like, aha, I finally got him. He's going into a city. He's going to be like a bird in a cage. He's going to be there ripe for the picking. Saul is so thankful for this turn of events. Verse 8, and Saul summoned all the people to war to go down to Keliah to besiege David and his men. Verse 9, David knew that Saul was plotting harm against him. David's intelligence network is better than Saul's. And he said to Abiathar the priest, bring the ephod here. Then David said, O Lord, the God of Israel, your servant has surely heard that Saul seeks to come to Keliah to destroy the city on my account because of me. Will the men of Keliah surrender me into his hand? Will Saul come down as your servant has heard? O Lord, the God of Israel, please tell your servant. And the Lord said, he, Saul, he will come down. Now I want you to notice what's going on here. Whereas Saul... In the last chapter, Saul had killed all the, the priests at Nob. Saul had absolutely no access to the Lord. David, God's true Messiah, through the priest Abiathar, has full and unfettered access to the will of God. Okay? Abiathar, um, after, and we'll read a little bit about this at the very end of the sermon, but... The priests at Nob, they helped David. They helped David. They gave David the showbread. They helped David and their men. When Saul heard about this, he was angry. He was enraged. And Saul and his men went and killed all of the priests who had helped David. But one priest escaped named Abiathar. And Abiathar knew the only safe place was with David. And so Abiathar goes to be with David. Abiathar brings the ephod. What in the world was the ephod? An ephod was a garment worn by the high priest and through it the priest could know the will of God. And so David in his camp had Abiathar the priest and the ephod of the high priest and through that God's Messiah had access to the will of the Lord. Well, how much information does David have access to? David through this, not only knows what will happen, David knows what would happen. In other words, he has access to all of God's knowledge. Okay? That's pretty amazing. Look at verse 12. Then David said, Will the men of Keliah surrender me and my men into the hand of Saul? And the Lord said, They will surrender you. Now, I think you'd have to agree, that's kind of ugly on the part of the inhabitants of Keliah, okay? They've been delivered. They get the spoils of war. David says, if Saul comes, will they hand me over? The Lord says, yes. How's that for gratitude? This is betrayal number one. The very people that David came to save would have betrayed him in a minute. 
And this is just the first of two significant betrayals in our text. Does that remind you of anyone who was betrayed by the very people that he came to save and deliver? Now, they ultimately did not surrender David. Why? So that did not come true. Why, why, why did that not come true? Because David left before they could hand him over. So it didn't happen, but it would have happened. Now, you think about that. What kind of knowledge does the God of the Bible possess? He possesses all knowledge, not, not, not just everything that will happen, but everything that would happen under certain conditions. That is a kind of, um, of omniscience that is just mind-blowing. He knows what you or I would do under any conceivable situation. He knows what a different life for you would have looked like. He knows what a different series of circumstances would have played out in your life. And guess what? He ordained the exact circumstances that are born out in your life and mine. He does everything for his glory and our good and the life that we're living and the things that we are experiencing are not an accident. They're not a coincidence. God has chosen exactly what is best for you and me. And that is very humbling. David had access to the knowledge of God through his priest. The same thing that the Lord Jesus would have via the Holy Spirit. Full access to the knowledge of God. He was God, but he was also human. He's ultimately our high priest as well. So many things that come together in the person of the Lord Jesus. Let's look at verses 13 and 14. Beloved, we can trust God's Messiah. That's going to be one of the main points of this text. We can trust God's Messiah. Verse 13. And then David and his men, who are about 600, David's men are growing. By the way, do you know what kind of men that David had that were serving him? These were not the best and the brightest. These were the outcasts of Israel. The Messiah of God did not necessarily welcome and recruit the top 1% of Israel. David used the outcast. David readily received, happily received, those who could not build a life for themselves in Israel. Think about the mercy and the grace of the character of David. He is welcoming all that will come to him. He will provide for them. He shepherds them. He cares for them. His army is growing. His reputation is increasing. His men, they're swelling up. Now he's got 600 people with him. Then David and his men, who were about 600, I'll also say this, this is a little preview for things to come. David did not leave Keliah because he was afraid of Saul. David left Keliah in order to have mercy on Saul. This is the young man who defeated Goliath. You know the songs that the people would sing? Saul kills his what? His thousands. David his what? Ten thousands. Everywhere David had gone, he'd been successful. 
every expedition he has led, totally successful. David and those 600 men could have wiped Saul from the face of the earth without any problem whatsoever. But because of David's regard for God's anointed, David keeps leaving. David keeps running. It's for Saul's benefit, not his own. Then David and his men, who were about 600, arose and departed from Keliah, and they went wherever they could go. When Saul was told that David escaped from Keliah, he gave up the expedition. So he didn't even bother going down, which is what David wanted. David didn't want Saul to descend on the city. That's another aspect of grace and mercy. He didn't want Keliah to get destroyed, which would have happened if Saul got down there. Verse 14, and David remained in the strongholds in the wilderness. In the hill country of the wilderness of Ziph, that's near Moab. If you look at your Bible map, it's way south. And Saul sought him every day, every day. But God did not give him into his hand. Now, there's going to be a great irony here in just a moment. Saul had every resource available at the time. He had the most money. Theoretically, he had the best agents. Obviously, the people of Keliah would have been loyal to Saul. Okay? How successful was Saul in finding David? He was not successful. But look what happens next. This is incredible. Verse 15. David saw that Saul had come to seek his life. David was in the wilderness of Ziph at Horesh. And Jonathan, Saul's son, rose and went to David at Horesh and strengthened his hand in God. And he said to him, Do not fear, for the hand of Saul my father shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. I'll be second. You'll be first. Jonathan, who is Jonathan in the story? Jonathan's the crown prince. If Saul dies, it's Jonathan's throne. But Jonathan has abdicated because Jonathan knows who God's anointed is. This is amazing. Verse 17, look how he comforts him and encourages him. Do not fear, for the hand of Saul, my father, shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel. I will be next to you. Notice what he says next. Saul, my father, also knows this. Everyone knows, especially Saul. That's why he's doing what he's doing. You're going to be king in the providence of God. Verse 18, and the two of them made a covenant before the Lord. David remained at Horish, and Jonathan went home. Now, think about this. Saul and all his resources cannot find David, cannot locate him. Jonathan finds him just like that. How is that possible? Because of Jonathan and David's relationship. Because of David's superior intelligence network. What does this teach us, friends? And it gives me almost goosebumps to say it. Those who seek God's Messiah with earnestness and sincerity, they always find him. Those who truly seek the Lord, those who truly seek Christ, always, always, always find him. You know, Jeremiah says, the Lord says, if you seek me, you will find me if what? If you seek me with all of your heart, I will be found by you, says the Lord. If you know your need, 
If you know your need of the Lord Jesus, if you seek him with earnestness and heartfelt desire, you will find him. And when you find him, you will find more than you could ever ask for. Isn't that amazing? Saul couldn't find him. Jonathan finds him just like that. And beloved, we can find the Lord Jesus just like that. Find his grace and his mercy and his love. I think that's incredible. That's profound. Whereas the angels of God brought comfort and ministry to Jesus in the wilderness, Jonathan does it for David here. Another message of the text. Even here in the wilderness of Ziph, even in the middle of nowhere, the comfort of the covenant reaches David. It doesn't matter where you are in your life. It doesn't matter what difficulty you are experiencing. The mercy and the grace of God can find you even there. Is that not amazing? The grace and mercy of the Lord Jesus is available and will find you in whatever situation you are. I love this quote from Spurgeon. Spurgeon writes, any man can selfishly desire to have a Jonathan but he is on the right track who desires to find a David to whom he can be a Jonathan. Now all of us, or many of us, probably have been in a position like David where we are experiencing difficulty and maybe um, depression, discouragement, and we've had people in our life come and encourage us at just right time. I want to encourage all of us today to be a Jonathan in the life of someone else. It's arguable that, David's, that, that Jonathan saved David's life in this passage by bringing him a word of comfort and grace. And we should be the kind of people who are looking for opportunities to show a Jonathan-like love in the life of other people. But in order to do that, you gotta have gospel eyes. You gotta have eyes that are aware of the plight of your brothers and sisters. You know, you've got to be looking for ways to encourage people. You don't know the impact of an apt word in season. You don't know the impact of an encouraging word in the context of a gospel. Just your presence is a huge encouragement to people during times of trouble. I can't tell you how many people over the years I've heard from that if the Lord's given me the grace to be in their life, they don't remember what I say. It's not profound anyway. But you know what they do remember? They remember that you're there. They remember that you care. They feel and sense the love of God in Christ Jesus when you show up. May God give us the grace to be a people who shows up. May God give us the opportunity to be a Jonathan, an encouraging word in the life of our brothers and sisters. Such an, a, such an encouragement in this passage. I'll tell you this, sometimes I'll just, this, when you encourage people, we can't, we can't tell them that every situation is going to work out exactly the way that they prefer. But we can tell them this. In Christ, everything's going to be okay. The circumstances may work out in the exact opposite way than you want. 
But you can tell them this. In light of eternity, everything is going to be okay in Christ Jesus. He loves you. He cares for you. He's providentially in control of every single aspect of your life. Just like he's doing for David, he's doing in your life. He's bringing these circumstances in your life for a purpose. Everything ultimately in Christ is going to be okay. Isn't that what really we want to know at the end of the day? That in one way, shape, or form, everything's going to be okay. And in light of eternity, everything is going to be okay. We'll end with this, an amazing example of God's providence and we'll land the plane. Aren't these Old Testament passages just incredibly edifying? Isn't it such a privilege to study God's word in light of the person and work of Jesus? What a treat we have every week. Verse 19, then the Ziphites. Do you know who the Ziphites are? These are David's tribesmen. Okay, so there's 12 tribes in Israel. Okay, these men, these people are of the tribe of Judah. So in terms of relationships in Israel, this is as close as it gets. These are David's blood relatives, the Ziphites were, people that lived in Ziph, in Judah. Then the Ziphites went up to Saul at Gibeah saying, is not David hiding among the strongholds at Horesh on the hill of Hekilah, which is south of Jeshimon? Now come down, O king, according to all of your heart's desire to come down, and our part shall be to surrender him into the king's hand. Can you imagine? To be theoretically betrayed by the people of Keliah after you delivered them, that was a blow. That was difficult. This is on another level. To be betrayed by your own blood relatives. Inexcusable. Do you think the Lord Jesus knows how to relate to this? Jesus who was betrayed by Judas, one of his own, abandoned, denied by those closest to him. All we're getting here is a preview of the life of the Lord Jesus. David is experiencing it first. David is betrayed by his own people. Verse 21, and Saul said, may you be blessed by the Lord. Think of how warped and distorted Saul's perspective is here. He thinks that the Lord is blessing this. He thinks the Lord is behind this. Those who are in rebellion from God Sadly, their, their, their whole understanding of life, their thinking, their perspective gets completely distorted. When we get in significant, unrepentant sin, the same thing happens. That's how people land in affairs and other difficult things, things that you never thought you would do. A thousand small compromises distorts your stink thinking and lands you in a very difficult spot. Saul is just, he's really out of his mind. May you be blessed by the Lord, for you have had compassion on me. You feel sorry for me. Verse 22, go make yet more sure. Know and see the place where his foot is. 
and who has seen him there. For it has told me that his, he is very cunning. Saul doesn't want to waste his time going down there unless he knows David is there. See therefore and take note of all the lurking places where he hides and come back to me with sure information. Then I will go with you once I know he's there. And if he's in the land, I'll search for him among the thousands of Judah. And they arose and went to Ziph ahead of Saul. Again, cue the ominous music. What's going to happen? Is Saul going to find him? If he does, what will happen then? Continue in the text. Now, David and his men were in the wilderness of Maon, in the Arabah, to the south of Jeshimon. And Saul and his men went to seek him. You know, and if we all were able to read Hebrew, like the plot is thickening, it's building, okay? The intensity is ripening. And Saul and his men went to seek him. And David was told, there's that wonderful intelligence network. And David was told, so he went down to the rock and lived in the wilderness of Maon. And when Saul heard that, he pursued after David in the wilderness of Maon. Saul went on one side of the mountain and David and his men on the other side of the mountain and David was hurrying to get away from Saul. What's going to happen? This is like a scene in Jurassic Park when like the velociraptor has that little kid cornered in the kitchen, you know, and the kid is dead, it's over until there's a distraction and the velociraptor gets led elsewhere. That's kind of what's happening here. I'm gonna go see the new Jurassic Park movie when it comes out. Here we go. As Saul and his men were closing in on David, this is incredible. As Saul and his men were closing in on David and his men to capture them, behold, a messenger came to Saul saying, um, excuse me, sir, excuse me, sir, memo from the front. Hurry and come, for the Philistines have made a raid against the land. And you know Saul's like, oh, I have him. And you're telling me. We've got to go back over here. He's like, yes, sir. We've got to go back over there. Obviously, this was much worse than Keliah. Saul had no concern over the fate of Keliah. Saul has got him dead to rights. And then there is a crisis on another part of the frontier that Saul has to go to. That is incredible. Look at verse 28. So Saul left. Saul returned from pursuing after David and went against the Philistines. Therefore, that place was called the Rock of Escape. You bet it was. Beloved, this is one of the most powerful examples of the providence of God found anywhere in the Bible. At the exact right moment, not a moment too soon and not a moment too late, God used who, of all people? God used the mortal enemy of Israel to deliver David. How is that for biblical irony? Of all the people that God could have used, he raised up the Philistines to attack Israel to save David. Our God is an awesome God. If the God of the Bible can do that, don't you think he can providentially Work out the details of your life and mine. Beloved, I think he can. I think he is up for the task. John Flavel, that English Puritan I read from at the beginning of the service, he has one of my favorite quotes on providence. 
He writes, the providence of God is like Hebrew words. It can only be read backwards. Because you read Hebrew right to left. Let me read that again. This is true of your life and mine. The providence of God is like Hebrew words. It can only be read backwards. I can only imagine what David was thinking when he got the word, when he's hiding, to go fight the Philistines in Keliah. That seemed asinine. That seemed like the exact opposite of what he should do. And then he goes there and he finds out they would betray him and then he leaves and he thinks he's safe and then his own countrymen betray him and hand him over to Saul. And yet at the 11th hour, at just the right time, God raised up the Philistines to save David. That is incredible. Why did he allow David to go through these things? For David's good. Why does he allow you and me to face unspeakably difficult things? You may be going through things right now for your good, to train you and equip you and make you more like Jesus. I'll end with this. Very encouraging. The end of 1 Samuel 22 Abiathar, the priest that's helped David in our chapter, the end of chapter 2, Abiathar escapes Saul's hands and finds David. And here's what happens. Abiathar escaped Saul's hand and he fled to David. He told David that Saul had killed the priests of the Lord. Then David said to Abiathar, stay with me. Do not be afraid. The man who wants to kill you is trying to kill me too. You will be safe with me. Beloved, that is the message of God's word. When you boil everything down, the Lord Jesus says to all of you, the true Christ of God, you will be safe with me. All of those who are in Christ, who have sought refuge in God's Messiah, will be safe to the very end. Amen and amen. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Father, we don't have enough time to mine all the riches of this text. We thank you, Lord, for the life and ministry of David, the, the original Messiah, as it were. We thank you for, for um, all of the ways you used him to deliver your people. We thank you for the example that he is. And Father, even more, we thank you for David's greater son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, we know that you ordained a variety of circumstances in David's life and Jesus' life that they would have never chosen on their own, but yet you ordained for their good and our glory, the greatest example being the worst thing that ever happened at the hands of sinful men, the crucifixion of Messiah, turns out in hindsight to be the greatest thing that ever happened to the world the death and atoning work of God's Messiah and Christ Jesus. Father, help us to trust you. Help us to love you. Help us to believe that your providence can only be read backwards. And one day, Lord, we know in glory, we will look back and say, you did it right. We thank you and praise you. In Jesus' name, amen and amen.